You're listening to 247 Real Talk. This is your host once again, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode. She is a, an award-winning uh, author, a behavior specialist, and on this episode, we will be discussing dementia. We'll be right back. So welcome, my guest tonight, Lisa Skinner. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me this late hour. Hi, Julian. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a it, pleasure. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you on the show and for what I know will be a very interesting conversation. And I'm going to open things up by telling my audience a little bit about my previous conversation with you. So... To all my audience out there, when I first spoke with Lisa, I found out that she has a lot of expertise in dealing with uh, dementia and behavioral or behavior associated with dementia. And she asked me if I ever experienced it, you know, someone close to me. And I recalled a situation where my mother was, um, before she died, her first bout with kidney failure her blood got a little poisoned and she went into a state, I guess her body went into a state of shock, but the result was behavior that was very similar to what I perceived to be dementia um, in terms of her, uh, my uh, myself and my brother were nowhere around at the hospital at the time because uh, she was in a different country. And she told my father, hey, look, I'm talking to my son. Look him right there. You know, it's like she was, um, I want to say hallucinating, but maybe not. So um, maybe my perception of dementia is completely off, but since I have friends and uh, recently one particular really close friend who told me his mother is now experiencing bouts of dementia, I'm hoping that Lisa can lead us in the right direction and, and not only help us to understand dementia, but also to help us to understand the associated behaviors, etc. So Lisa, off you go. Okay. Well, let's start uh, at square one. Um, let me clarify for everybody the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease. That's probably one of the most common questions that I get asked. And um, I think a lot of people believe, and of course I was one of them years and years ago, that dementia is actually its own illness and Alzheimer's disease is a separate illness, and Parkinson's disease is a separate illness, um, that actually is not um, correct. So there are actually over 100 brain diseases that cause dementia. So dementia really is a broad term that's used to describe the symptoms that accompany brain diseases that cause cognitive loss. So uh, just to kind of put that in perspective, um, you know, most of us have had a cold and we come down with a variety of symptoms that tell us we probably have a cold, uh, anywhere from fevers to ch 
chills to sniffles to coughs, but not everybody experiences the same exact symptoms when they come down with a flu or the cold. They vary from person to person. And that's exactly true with dementia. So there are so many different signs and symptoms and behaviors that accompany dementia, and every case is different. So you can have you know, 50 people in a room all with a diagnosis of dementia and they all have different symptomology. It's a very complicated, complex illness. So anyway, just to um, clarify, a brain disease such as Alzheimer's, which is actually the number one cause of dementia, um, is the disease and dementia is the term used to describe symptoms of that disease. Okay, so in other words, dementia is basically the 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 behavioral part of it. Right, the signs, the symptoms, exactly. So when you uh, mentioned your mother and you you said that she thought she was talking to her son, um, that actually is a common behavior of dementia. Uh, it could have been a delusion or it could have been a hallucination. But um, one thing that's really interesting that you um, mentioned about your mom, and uh, people find this fascinating too, there are certain things that happen, um, infections that we get, that can bring on or mimic dementia. But they, the difference is they come on very, very quickly. And that's kind of what you described with your mom. You mentioned that she had, um, she was in renal failure, right? Yes. Okay. And maybe there's, um, got into her blood system? Yes, yes. It uh, was a temporary infection. That actually can cause the signs and symptoms of dementia. And we see that very commonly with women. Well, not just women, men get them too. Urinary tract infections. And the, one of the biggest differences is if somebody has a urinary tract infection that goes untreated without antibiotics, and if it goes long enough without being treated, it actually gets into the blood system and this, it mimics dementia, but it comes on really hard and really quick. Um, and it and goes away happens, with, the, with the cure. Yeah, it, it, there's a cure for that one. It's, right. uh, you know, an antibiotic uh, regimen. And uh, once the infection is killed, then it usually takes a couple of weeks to completely get it out of your system. And then those symptoms go away. So, uh, In the case of I my mother, um, she went for her first dialysis treatment as a result of the diagnosis. And... By the time she came back from the dialysis treatment late to that, uh, the next day, she was back to normal. Right, because it was out of her system and it was treated. So that is um, contrary to most brain diseases that cause dementia because it is um, a progressive, degenerative illness that does not get better. And it's a slow, uh, progressing disease that can take anywhere from 8 to 20 years 
uh, for somebody to, you know, progress through all the stages. And one of the things that's really interesting about this disease is in the beginning, the signs and the symptoms are very, very subtle. And it's very difficult to tell the difference between forgetfulness and, and, and uh, memory problems that we all experience as we age versus it actually being something more serious, like a brain disease that causes those same symptoms. This is the reason why most people are not diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or some of the other brain diseases until they're already into the mid-stage because normal forgetfulness that comes with the natural part of aging doesn't impact your daily life. It's just more of, of an inconvenience. Oh, I forgot where I put my keys or, oh, where are my sunglasses? Oops, they're on top of my head. That's, you know, that we've, we can all relate to those things. But uh, brain disease progresses and it eventually um, deteriorates the person's brain to the point where they can't function. They uh, need full care and, you know, it, it uh, just ravages the brain. Uh, the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease and probably the one that we relate to the most is memory loss. But other brain diseases, uh, and I'll give you a quick example, Parkinson's disease, uh, the hallmark of um, that type of brain disease that causes dementia are hallucinations because it's, it's damaging a different part of the brain than Alzheimer's disease does. So um, there's a lot of variations and uh, it's very, very complicated what it's, what's happening to the person that uh, has developed it. So there was another scenario. That's interesting because there was another scenario that I thought about after we last spoke, and that is my grandfather, who also lived in South America at the time, um, he was around almost 90. And I'm not sure how we would um, look at, at his behavior, but he, you know, in, in, in South America, there, there, it was simply being in that environment that actually saved him because he got up one day and basically climbed out the window and jumped. And um, there were low-lying wires from the electricity and I guess all the things that were there that continued to break his fall all the way down to the ground because he was in the second story. And then he got up and, you know, just stood there. And, you know, my aunt who lived with him, you know, the neighbors alerted her and she ran down. She got him. He was filled with mud. Um you know, he had no clue what he, so he seemed to have no clue what he did or what he was doing. Um, you know, so I, I'm assuming from from the stories I've heard, because I was not in, you know, in, at that location at the time, from what I've heard from my father, is that it seemed like he had full blown what they termed uh, dementia. That's one of the things that uh, happens to people eventually when they get to a certain stage of dementia is they uh, lose their ability to reason 
or to use sound judgment about things. And, um, you know, we're, we're over conditioned, um, as we're aging to, um, know the things that we need to do to, um, protect ourselves, to be cautious. And, you know, one of the things that we learn at an early age is before you step off a curb, uh, into traffic, you're going to look both ways <laughs> to make sure a car is not coming. You're actually going through this reasoning process. People with dementia, they don't have that capability anymore. So they wouldn't be able to actually, um, you know, use that that power of reasoning. They'll just step off a curb and then they won't stop to think that, oh my gosh, I have to make sure that cars are not coming before it's safe for me to go across the street. They'll just step off and, you know, if there's a car there, there's a car there. So are you following what I'm saying? You completely lose, eventually lose that ability to use sound judgment and use the reasoning that we were conditioned to as as we're, you know, from the time we're children all the way up into adulthood. And that's just gone. Um, so... That's one of the the things that is very common that we see. So perhaps your grandfather um, just he could have mistaken the window for a door. He could have thought he was someplace else, and he. I mean, there, there's just no telling. There's a thousand scenarios of what was going through his mind that um, he didn't use any judgment or reasoning because that part of his brain was damaged. And that is uh, um, a very common occurrence. It happens to different people at different times, but it's typically mid-stage to latter stage that we start to see those type of of, um, uh, behaviors occur. I think, and yeah, it I think, becomes very dangerous. I think that was um, close to before he died um, of you know what we ter- what we call old age, you know, of natural causes in his sleep. Um, you know, when everything else I think had gone to the point of of being so aged, or he had aged to that point where he had aged out, so to speak. Um, I can see the point you're making about him maybe mistaken though, because in 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 the houses there. The windows are vertical from ceiling to ground, so to speak, open side oh. to side. So even though there is some um, height off of the ground, they, they could present themselves differently to someone who who you know, does not have clarity, you know. And But the, I think the astounding part was that I was told was that you know, once he fell in the mud and, and, and he got up, he, was, he seemed oblivious to anything that, that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, there was yeah, no panic, totally there was no sense. fear, there was no, you know, oh, you know, what did I do? There was no shock, there was no, they just let him back upstairs, you know, took him into the bathroom, washed off the mud, you know, put clothes on him and put him back into bed. And, you know, and this day went on. It's a miracle that he even survived that. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, I think that, you know, the way the houses are, think about in South America, so they're, they're you know, times there are a lot of wires that, 
you know, um, come from the street, the, the street poles to the house of, you know, for various things. And then they're, you know, that's a tropical place. So people sometimes have uh, clothes lines outside, you know, lower down, you know, something. There was enough, there were enough obstacles that were not, um, you know, solid obstacles, but things that have flexibility that, you know, broke his fall all the way down to the ground. So yes, it was a miracle. I'm sure if, if I jumped out that same window and aimed for those things, I'd miss, you know? So, and then, like I said, he got up full of mud and, 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 you know, when they were done with him, he went back to bed and it wasn't, there was no conversation about it. There was no, um, you know, recollection or recognition of what he had done from, you know, from his perspective. And, I don't think wow. he, I think if I remember correctly, it was probably months later he died of natural causes. At, you know, at that point he was 90 and um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you've aged out, but in his case he did. Right. So um, one of the things that I know that we wanted to uh, touch on, I would love to hear from you uh, is, and I'm recalling a lot of things as we're having this conversation and as you elaborate on certain things. I remember someone else I know that's close to the family. Um, she had Alzheimer's. She spent many years in the home until she died. Um, I remember one particular night I went to visit their home and I was outside in the car getting ready to go in. It was a summer night and I saw the door open and she walked out in a white nightgown, walked out of the yard. And there was some distance between the door and the gate, walked down to the gate, opened the gate, walked down the pavement, no shoes, no anything. And then, you know, here came some family member running after her to bring her back inside. Um, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so mm-hmm. part of what I think we want to get from you and in, in your expertise is, I hear from friends of mine who, who are dealing with this now with parents, et cetera, the challenges of dealing with the behavior as a family member, um, how to not only deal with those challenges, but how, you know, I think this is such an important topic because I think, you know, it's, 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 it's the spotlight has been on it more recently because a lot more people have come out and talked about it. And, it has to be very difficult for family members, especially say children or, or spouses to deal with this on many levels. Um, Cause it becomes, I think, and you can, you know, you can, you can sort of speak on all these things. Uh, once I share these thoughts, it becomes a mental challenge. I think number one for the family members or those close to the person dealing with it who are not caretakers, professionally but related to so family members you know members in the home um i think it becomes a, an emotional struggle it becomes a mental struggle um i can't imagine you know when my mom was alive having a conversation with her and then she didn't know who i was which is well i have one friend who is experiencing that that right now with his mother um and then i think it becomes another challenge for family members and those around immediately having to adjust and understand how to treat the person and how to treat the occurrences of what happened, how to deal with them in a manner that's um, 
not the way you would deal with a typical person who is acting with all their faculties, but having certain levels of of compassion, not for the person necessarily, but for their behavior and understanding it and dealing with it and responding to it in a manner that doesn't exasperate the situation. Well, you know, this is actually probably one of the most important aspects of this disease that, in my experience, I would want people to know how important it is to... First of all, understand what's happening to the brain of their loved one or the people that they care for. Because um, as I mentioned, as the person is progressing through this illness and through the different stages, and they um, suffer more and more and more damage to their brain, and it's impacting different regions of their brain, they lose um, their cognitive function in in many, many ways. And with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, you know, is, uh, they're kind of interchangeable, um, people really associate it with memory loss, which is true. That is the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. But it's more than that, and it's very, very complicated. Again, you, people lose their ability to reason. They, they, we see changes in personality. We see their uh, loss of um, the ability to sequence things. And when I say sequence, I mean, you know, the things that we learn, um, that we do on a take for granted on a day-to-day basis. Brush our teeth. Okay, there are certain steps. You take your toothbrush out of the toothbrush holder, you run it under water, what's the next step? You put the toothpaste on. It's a sequence that you follow when you do these very simple things. To get dressed in the morning, there's a sequence of tasks that we do that are just come second nature. You lose the ability to do all of those things when you have a brain disease that causes dementia. So let me just kind of illustrate it this way because um, I think this, this analogy most people can relate to. You know, a lot of us, when we get up into our older years, we lose p- part of our hearing or some people lose all of their hearing. And then it becomes difficult to communicate with the person who has the hearing loss. But you're not going to just stop communicating with that person. You have to learn other ways to communicate with that person than you did before because now they have an impairment. You know, they've invented great telephones now and there's, you know, lip reading and there's... uh, chalkboards and dry write boards and all kinds of different um, options for communicating with somebody that no longer has the ability to hear properly. They're hearing aids. So think of dementia, like somebody who may have lost their hearing, that you don't want to stop communicating with the person because of their memory impairment but you need to find 
new ways of communicating with that person, but it becomes very, very complicated and very challenging because most people lose their ability at some point to verbally communicate with their family members, with their caregivers. They find other means to communicate once they reach a certain stage where they can't communicate or articulate their wants or their needs anymore. And these are what we see in the behaviors that we see. They're communicating with us through behaviors. And this is one thing that I really want to stress is there are a lot of very unique behaviors that are associated with dementia. And some of them can be quite hard to handle and quite difficult and quite difficult to understand. And the people who who have the brain disease, they're not displaying or acting out with these behaviors to be difficult or nasty or anything like that. They are trying to tell us something. And it's up to us to recognize, number one, okay, here's a behavior. They're trying to tell us something because they can't verbally tell us anymore. We have to try to decode what that behavior means. So you almost have to become kind of like a detective. And after you recognize um, that the behavior is, there's a meaning, an underlying meaning with the behavior, then the next uh, challenge is to figure out what it is that they're trying to tell us. And a lot of times it's going through a process of elimination. Um, are they in pain? Are they hungry? Are they hot? Are they cold? So you have to kind of go through all of um, this process of elimination to figure out what it is they're trying to tell us. And that's a, a, a skill set in itself. So, um, and most of our reactions to some of these behaviors that we see are counterintuitive. So let me give you an example. Because most people that have Alzheimer's disease, the very first thing that is damaged in their brain is their short-term memory. And this is one of the reasons why they don't recognize, sometimes they don't recognize their son or their daughter or their grandchild or their neighbor or whatever, um, because the short-term memory switch kind of gets shut off temporarily, and eventually it's off for good. So in the beginning stages of the disease, your short-term memory is on more than it's off. And then as the disease progresses, It's on sometimes and it's off sometimes. And then it's on and off, on and off. And then as it progresses to the end stage of the disease, it usually is completely, the short-term memory is just completely gone. Our long-term memory stays intact. Once our short-term memory is gone, then we pull our memories from our long-term memory. So this is the entire reason why 
at any given time, a person with Alzheimer's disease might not know where they are. They might not recognize their spouse or their son or their daughter because that short-term memory switch got shut off and now they are back into a previous period of their life. My mother-in-law, when her short-term memory um, switch got uh, shut off, even temporarily, she didn't recognize my husband because in her mind, she went back to a period in her life. She was pulling her her memories from a long-term memory, and her period of time that she kind of settled into was when she was an adolescent. She was like 13 or 14 years old. Now, at 13 and 14 years old, in her reality, she hadn't even met her husband yet. She hadn't met him. She hadn't married him. And she certainly didn't have five children. So she knew, when she would see my husband, she knew she knew him from someplace. There was a connection there. But because in her mind, she wasn't even hadn't even left her parents' house yet. They didn't even have a driver's license yet. This couldn't be her grown son. So she started calling him Otto, and that was her brother's name. She thought he was her brother because that's what made sense in her reality. So that's one of the hardest things that uh, we as family members face when they start talking about things that make absolutely no sense to us because it doesn't fit into our reality, but it's their reality and it fits into their reality at that time. And there's absolutely nothing that anybody can do or say to make them believe that their reality, whether it lasts a minute or an hour or a day or the rest of their lives is anything but what they're talking about. So one of the strategies that we use to help eliminate their frustration and their stress is we adapt to their reality. We join their reality. So that's a skill that we teach people um, how to manage this disease. Well, that's got, um, that- a- effectively that's that's gotta be i mean i'm sitting here you know like intently listening to every word that you're saying because it's it's i find this not only fascinating i I find it a lot of things fascinating is one because i i think life fascinates me i you know i look at life and and look at the differences and, and and what can occur in a lifetime and um and I use the term fascinating, not to necessarily say I embrace some of the things that happen, but it is a fascinating journey, irrespective of what happens. Um, but also, you know, I, I can't, I, I would have to also identify with the struggle of the family member. I mean, like you, you say things like joining their reality, you know, and while doing something like that obviously will make it easier on the person who is experiencing the disease, that's got to be tremendously difficult for the family member who has to become part of that world. Um, I mean, and I'll, and I'll give you a couple of my thoughts on that. One is 
there's the emotional aspect, whether it's your mother, whether it's your wife, whatever, whether it's your husband, your son. The point is that you've got to now accept the fact that that person who is experiencing the disease is is possibly no longer a part of your emotional connection. So they involuntarily um, would, would, would not be part of um, whatever level of love or, and, and, and relationship that existed anymore because not, you know, as I said, involuntarily. And that's one thing that I think, you know, to having to deal with, you know, having to see a mother or father get to that point, that's gotta be a struggle. It's gotta be um, painful to, to family members to, to see happen and to try to grasp it and understand it and become part of that world and deal with it. And I think that um, I can imagine that when the day is over and, and um, that person is, uh, has gone to bed, the person who's experiencing dementia, I, I can imagine that it has a massive toll on you know, some family members, depending on how they're able to deal with it and cope with all the dynamics surrounding having someone close to you go through that experience. And so, you know, the, the aspect I'm, I'm looking at too is, is care for the person who is suffering from dementia and then, and then sort of care for the caregiver for, or for, you know, the, 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 the people, the family members and friends or whatever surrounding that person. And, and then, um, the, I can imagine the mental and physical, the emotional toll it must have on, you know, those around. Everything you are saying is a hundred percent true. And I've been doing this for close to 30 years. In addition to doing it professionally, I've had eight of my own family members with a brain disease that causes dementia. Uh, five blood relatives and three through mar- marriage. And I've counseled many, many families over the years. And, and I'll tell you, Julian, this disease, I've seen it tear families apart. I've seen it divide families into camps where, you know, siblings, um, um, in one of the, the camps, uh, they really want to understand the disease and, and have a better relationship with their loved one. And then in the other side of the camp that's in denial and, oh, it's not as bad as they say it is and just really have a difficult time accepting the changes that they see in their loved ones because it's not the person they knew. And it is very painful. And it is painful when your mother is calling you a name that you don't even recognize. But I think my best piece of advice for anybody that's going through this, whether they're caring for somebody that has this disease or it's um, one, of, one of their family members, is to embrace it because you can't change it. And it's going to progress no matter how much you don't want it to. Um, And if people can embrace it and understand it, 
and recognize these behaviors and figure out what that person is trying to tell you. Um, it's so much easier to go through this journey and it's a much more enjoyable experience because you can still have a very meaningful relationship with the person that has the disease if you can embrace it and know how to effectively manage it by learning some of these tools. Um, it does not have to be as heart-wrenching um, as, as it is for most people because they struggle with these day-to-day challenges. But I think, uh, yeah, and, and I agree with you. I, I can see... Um... I can see the value in that and, and obviously the importance in that because that person is still that relative irrespective of, but you know, I, as I was thinking again, as you were going over that, I'm also thinking about the role that, you know, um, society plays in it, the role that socioeconomic dynamics play in it. Um, and by that, I mean, for instance, having a parent who, you know, go start. You know, starts to go through dementia, progresses. A parent maybe that is otherwise not necessarily elderly because I'm. Um, it's not necessarily related to any specific age, um, as far as I know it to be. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, albeit that we see it happening in in older people. Um, you know, I guess it can happen to someone who's seventy, just as it can happen to someone who's ninety. And so having that person um, be able to take care of themselves in a, in, a, in a scenario where maybe you're taking care of your parent and, and you work and your spouse works and the children, it's an empty nest other than the parents. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where you now have to find, you still have to go to work. So you have to find a caretaker for your relative. And in this case, I'm just going to use a mother, you know, just just to make my point. And so now you you're you're dealing with dealing with her uh, uh, based on and and everything that you've told us and how how to relate to her and, and becoming part of her reality. And now, you know, financial and 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 other aspects have forced you to find a home for her. Now you have to put her somewhere where someone else is dealing with her, someone else who does not have the the relationship, someone who maybe, you know, is is a skilled worker, but someone who, you know, is, is around her when you're not around her. So someone who has an impact in her life who may treat them differently. As we know, there are healthcare workers who are amazing and then they've got, you know, like anything else in the world, they've got people who they're human beings too. And so sometimes their reactions to their patients are not what a family member would be. And now you've got to leave that person who is suffering with this disease in the care of someone else. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying all this not to take away anything from the person who is suffering from dementia, but as a, as a, as a as an aid to my audience, people who are seeking um, support and 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 direction, uh, hoping that you also can you know sort of uh, lend your expertise to how to cope with that. 
Yeah, this is a really a good uh, point that that you're bringing up because the environment that is provided and the type of care that is provided for people who suffer from cognitive impairment is critical to the quality of their life. And there's a lot of layers that um, come into play with that as well. My advice to people uh, for this for this type of illness, you know, it's different if uh, somebody is suffering from uh, medical issues and, you know, they need uh, care of medical professionals. This is a a totally different animal because the brain is suffering in this case. A lot of people who have dementia are physically and medically very healthy, but their brains are are being so damaged by um, the disease that you're seeing this person completely um, just decline. And while they're declining, they're losing their ability to pretty much do everything for themselves. And one of the big challenges is to um, keep those brain cells, the the spark plugs um, igniting. And the way you do that is by offering engaging and enriching activities and, um, you know, it's just a a whole regimen and most people um, thrive uh, in an environment where there's a solid routine. So the point I'm trying to make with this is this takes such a, a specialized skill set to take care of somebody that is suffering from um, dementia. Um, So that's one thing that you really want to take into consideration is if you are going to place your loved one in um, a care facility, whether it's a a home or, you know, more of a, a larger type of complex, Make sure that the people that are caring for your loved one have this specialized training and they know um, the proper things to offer to keep their lives enriched and to keep them stimulated, but not overstimulated. You have to find that, that fine line between, you know, somebody just being planted in front of a television set all day long and they're just practically comatose to being overstimulated and that causes an entire different set of problems for people with brain disease. So it's like you said, Julian, it's a very, very difficult fine line to walk and um, it takes a fair amount of knowledge to know what to look for and what works and what doesn't work. And the same goes if you're going to keep your loved one at either their home or your home, because uh, there's a lot of components that go into those environments as well. Safety considerations, 
um, for example, you you said that one lady had um, walked out of the house barefoot and in her her nightgown, and she really wasn't aware of where she was. That is actually a very common occurrence. I'll tell you one story of this lady that um, I was aware of. She had lived in her home for probably 35 years, and her husband had recently passed away. And every morning, she routinely took the dog for a walk, and she left the house, and she put the dog on a leash, and she walked the same road every day for over 30 years. Different dogs, of course, but same routine. And one day, she made a conscious decision to take the dog for a walk, just like she had been doing for years and years. No big deal. Took the dog for a walk, and all of a sudden, that short-term memory switch got flipped off while she was on her walk, and she didn't know where she was. She didn't recognize her neighborhood. She didn't know who she was. Just like that, she wandered to a neighbor's house. The neighbor recognized her, but she didn't recognize the neighbor. And, of course, the neighbor knew um, who she was and where she lived. So she called her eldest daughter and said, I've got your mother here at my house. And she's terribly confused. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know where she is. It can happen like that. This is very, very common. So the daughter went and picked her up. And from that point on, never left her alone at home again, because it, it was too dangerous when things like that happen. I've heard of people getting in their cars. They're, they're perfectly loose. They go, oh, I got to go to the store. They get in their car and then that switch gets flipped off. And all of a sudden they're completely confused. They don't know where they they were going uh, this one lady that I know of just parked her car in the middle of the road thinking that she had pulled into the parking lot of the grocery store and got out of her car and just was wandering around the road in the middle of traffic. And she honestly believed that she was in the grocery store parking lot. But you see, see where I'm going with this, that there are just so many dangers out there for people who lose their ability to... Um, to rationally think about things. They forget. They don't know where they are. They become confused. So there's so many dangerous things to have to take into consideration for people staying in their own homes with brain disease or even at their family members' homes without safeguards put in place. Yeah. I mean, and then there's still the... um if if you have to put them in, in a facility, then there's, unfortunately, there's still the economic uh, issue that sometimes makes these, you know, pushes you to a place to make um, hard decisions that you may, you have very little control over, but you may regret at some point. Um, well, a lot of people are in the position today where they can't afford um, professional care. Right. That's, because yes. it's not covered 
by any insurance unless the person just happens to have a long-term care insurance policy, but um, it's all out of pocket. Right. And, and the places yeah, that you will go to that will accept them don't have that level of care. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the uh, last things I want to cover here and I think is really important is um, you also mentioned um, the risk factors that increase the chances of developing dementia and what we can do to lower the risk. So tell us about that. Okay. So there are quite a few risk factors that increase all of our chances of developing um, brain disease or, or dementia um, as we get older. And the number one risk factor to all of us is age. The second risk factor is cardiovascular disease. And with cardiovascular disease comes hypertension and high blood pressure, um, people that suffer from sleep apnea, that's a risk factor. So every risk factor that applies to any individual increases their chances of developing dementia. So the more these risk factors that you can get under control, so uh, as I mentioned, cardiovascular disease is risk factor, the, the second highest risk factor. If your cardiovascular disease is being managed by medication, then that kind of negates that from being a high risk factor for you. Age we can't do anything about. Um, there are many risk factors that are modifiable and controllable and manageable and there are others that aren't. So age, we can't do anything about that. We're all aging. Um, genetics is another is another risk factor. Um, some brain diseases run in families, like mine. So that's a, that that's that's a added risk factor for me. But just because I know it runs in my family doesn't necessarily mean I'm gonna. I'm destined to get it. Um, being a female increases my risk factor because more females get Alzheimer's disease than males. So every risk factor that you have going against you, if you can manage those, you can lower your risk of developing it later on. And one of the things that many studies have revealed over the last several decades is our lifestyles actually play a very important role in lowering our risk factor or lowering our risk of developing dementia. So our diets, if we um, eat healthier based foods, then we lower our risk of developing dementia. If um, race um, a, can raise your risk or lower your risk, they know that's a fact. Um, exercise, uh, if you exercise regularly, you can lower your risk of developing dementia. 
if you exercise your brain, like learn a foreign language, your brain has to work doubly hard to learn a foreign language. It's probably one of the most um, recommended things to help lower that risk is to learn a foreign language or learn to play a musical instrument or do crossword puzzles, anything that you can do to exercise that brain and, uh, you know, keep it active will lower your risk. So there, there actually are a lot of things that people can start doing, um, when they're younger that will lower their risk of developing Alzheimer's disease when they're older, because, um, usually doesn't show up until after the age of 65, Mm -hmm. unless it's what's, what we call early onset dementia. And uh, if you're diagnosed with cognitive impairment before you're 65, then that's pretty much a genetic situation and you really can't do anything about that. But um, typically Alzheimer's disease starts to show up after uh, the age of 65 and uh, for all of us who haven't reached that age yet, at any time we start um, implementing these things into our daily routines and our lifestyle will eventually um, will will help lower the risk of us developing um, dementia when we're in our older years. Mm-hmm. And these are often um, proven. Well, that's, Based that's, on scientific studies. Yeah, that's a good uh, that's good advice. I think the several of the things you listed are also um, good good practices just for healthy living. Period. <laughs> um, exercise <laughs> and true. diet. You know. So, yeah. tell us a little bit before we go about your book. Well, um, I wrote a book uh, a few years ago. And this is really kind of interesting because I had a consulting business and I kind of shut it down after I decided to write the book because I stepped away from it to write the book. And I went to these um, clients' house and they wanted to be more informed about what to expect with uh, their parents. One had a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease and one had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and they were at their wits end because they were having a very difficult time finding information on what to expect on a day-to-day basis. So they found out about me and they called me over and, you know, they were picking my brain and I was answering their questions of kind of what life was going to look like now and what, what their journey was going to look like having two parents with brain disease. And the woman stopped me after about two and a half hours and she said, you know, Lisa, we've gotten more information out of you in the last two and a half hours than we've gotten from anybody else in the last two years since our diagnosis. And I'm not saying that to, you know, toot my own horn. I'm saying that because what came out of her mouth next was my aha moment. And she said, you really need to share this information with families like us because we're desperate to know these things. There's so many limited resources out there to find out these 
day-to-day challenges and you need to share it with the world. And I had been hearing this for decades because I worked in this industry professionally uh, since 1996 and also had the experience of my own family members. And I realized not only was she right, but I've been hearing the same thing for a long time. And that was kind of my aha moment to finally put the pen to the paper and um, hopefully help all those families out there that are struggling with this disease because it is so devastating and it lasts for so long. It's not, okay, well, you've had this diagnosis, you have a terminal brain tumor and you've got six months to live. No, this, this is a diagnosis that once the diagnosis is made, you still have, you know, an average of eight to 15 years to go. That's after the diagnosis is made. You could have, the, your family member could have been living with this disease for years before that diagnosis because the symptoms were so subtle, you didn't really realize it until they became blatantly obvious. So anyway, um, the name of my book is Not All Who Wander Need Be Lost, and I wrote it to help families through this struggle and to give them a resource to go to to help um, make their journey a little a little easier and uh, easier to deal with and easier to manage and and have a, a better quality relationship with their loved one. Uh, where can you so, get the book? Um, it's available on Amazon and okay. also Barnes and Noble. Great, great, great. So. As we wrap this up, I'd like you to leave my audience with uh, Lisa's final thought. This is probably the hardest thing any family will ever have to go through in their lifetime. It's a very complicated, heartbreaking disease. But again, from what I know and what I've seen and uh, experienced with other families that if you um, have the right tools in your toolbox, you can have a a much more meaningful um, experience with your loved one. And so I just, I, I, I can't emphasize enough that you know, it's a tough thing to go through, but if you embrace it, you'll have a more positive experience. Okay, so that is Lisa's final word, and I hope that all the information that she shared with us in this conversation that um, those in my audience who are dealing with it or know someone that's dealing with it uh, will get some value out of this, and if you are seeking additional support and and knowledge you know you can go to amazon and grab lisa's book not all who wonder need to be lost lisa i want to thank you so very much for being a guest on my show you certainly uh gave great information and and certainly enlightened me and and uh i'm sure many out there who are either dealing with this or who will have to in the future so thank you so much for being a guest on 247 real talk 
thank you again for having me. And I hope that this is helpful to a lot of people out there. I'm sure it was. Thank you so much. I want to say a very special thank you to my guest, Lisa Skinner, for this very informative and engaging conversation about something that really affects the lives of so many around this world. That's what 247 Real Talk is all about. Also want to say a special thank you, as always, to my supporters and my listeners, reminding you that you can listen to every podcast on your favorite podcast app, or you can head over to the website at www.247realtalk.net. If you'd like to leave me a message, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can send me an email at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. For those of you who are dealing with family members and friends who are suffering from dementia, give them an extra hug tonight. Let them know that you care and you're a little better equipped to show them what they need to have a normal life. Until the next time, do take care of yourselves and each other.